Could I ask you to turn in your Bibles to uh, the Gospel of Mark? We're going to read that together in a few minutes, but you can turn this along. Uh, Mark chapter 6 is the portion uh, of God's Word that we're going to look at together in a few minutes. I just want to say a couple of things before I start this evening. One was just to thank you all for your prayers for us as elders uh, last weekend as we went away for our retreat. Uh, We are very grateful to the Lord for particularly your prayers. Uh, We know that God's people were praying for us, and and we really sense that. uh, And we will, in due course, be giving feedback to the church with regards to just various matters that we discussed and things that we would like the church to be thinking and praying about uh, as we uh, seek to know the Lord's will in our lives. So I just wanted to thank you for that. I did mention as well at the second service this morning that next Sunday uh, we have our communion service, and I wanted to mention that here this evening because perhaps you are in the uh, pattern of only coming on a Sunday night, and we're glad that you're here, Um, but our heart as elders is that as a church we gather primarily for our um, worship and feeding and teaching through the Word of God on a Sunday morning, and we only have communion once a month on a Sunday morning. So if you are in the habit of only coming on a Sunday night, uh, can I encourage you to join with us next Sunday morning at either the 8 or the 10 o'clock service as we seek to be obedient uh, to the Lord's will uh, in regularly remembering His death as we celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper together. Let's turn in our Bibles then to to Mark chapter 6, and let's read from verse 1 through to verse 44. Uh, That's the section that we're going to be uh, looking at this evening, and I'm in Matthew, so that's not going to work. Let me get to Mark. There we go. Mark chapter 6, reading from verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath... He began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed, many, uh, anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. 
For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herod, Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of, the, of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they, excuse me, when they had found out, they said, Five loaves and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces uh, and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Well, just so far in the reading of God's word this evening. Let's just come briefly to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, as we come before your word, we recognize that uh, in our human understanding, uh, we will make a, a mess uh, of what we read before us. In our human understanding, uh, we will seek to 
read into the Scriptures that which we wanted to say to us. And so we do pray for the help of your Holy Spirit, as we were reminded of this morning, the Holy Spirit who enlightens us to not only know you, but to understand your word. And we do pray that you would have helped me in this week leading up to this point, and you would help us now as we consider your word together to understand uh, what you want us to know uh, as we read and study your word together. And may you be pleased to work in us that which you have purposed for this evening. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we do come tonight again to this next section in Mark's gospel, uh, and I think Shane said it before, and maybe Kyle as well, it's not our normal practice uh, here at Honey Ridge to preach through the New Testament books by taking such large sections of Scripture at a time, uh, and it really is a little bit out of our comfort zone, but I hope you've been benefiting from seeing something of the bigger picture in Mark's gospel, which is hard to do if you work very slowly through the gospel, uh, sort of section by section. And, and hopefully you've started to see that uh, Mark's gospel is not just a random collection of events in the life of Jesus, as we'll see tonight. They're not even always in chronological order, because Mark is wanting to group different aspects of Jesus' ministry together to help us to better understand who Jesus is and what that means for us as Christians today. So in some of the previous weeks, we've seen something of Jesus' authority over the different spheres of human life, the, the mind and the heart and the, the physical realm. We've seen something of Jesus' conflicts with various groups of people and how they responded to him. We saw Jesus' parables as the primary means of Jesus' teaching. And then last week, we saw something of Jesus' miracles in further establishing his authority over all of his created universe. Now, in tonight's section, chapter 6, verse 1 through to 44, I think Mark has broadly grouped these four accounts together to show us the impact of Jesus' words on various groups of people. We will see in a few minutes four different groups of people responding very differently to the words of Jesus. Two of the groups responded very positively to Jesus' words, and two groups responded very negatively. Now, in the Gospel of John, so not Mark, but John's Gospel, after his parallel account of this period in Jesus' ministry, John tells us in John chapter 6, uh, verse 66 to 69, after this, after the events that we've just read, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so it's crucial that we face this same reality tonight before we come to the text together. You see, what you and I do with the words of Jesus tonight will divide us into two groups. That's a given. There will be those tonight who are offended by Jesus and reject him because of his word. And then there will be those tonight who are attracted to Jesus and will accept him because of his word. The same word will go out tonight and will divide us. 
the Bible is clear that there is no middle ground. The words of Christ divide the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the weeds, the saved and the condemned. You, you cannot sit under the preaching of Jesus and remain neutral. There's no such thing as Switzerland uh, in the spiritual realm. What you do with the words of Jesus tonight will reveal which of the two groups you belong to. So let's come then to Mark 6 and see what we can learn from these very different responses to the words of Jesus. And in the first place, I want us to see that the words of Jesus offend the unbeliever in verses 1 to 6. Now, we must be reminded again of the primary mission of Jesus in coming to earth. And that was not, as some would teach and believe, to do miracles. Now, he certainly did many miracles. We've seen that already. But Jesus has specifically told us, if you want to look back at chapter 1, verse 38, what his primary mission was in coming to earth. In Mark 1, 38, we read that Jesus said, to his disciples, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. He was in the midst of doing a full day's worth of miracles, and the crowds were there for more. And Jesus says, I'm going to go to the next villages, not to do miracles, but to preach, because that's why I came. So the miracles of Jesus we have seen serve a very important purpose. But it's a purpose which is subservient to his primary purpose, which is to reveal to us that he is indeed the Holy One of God, so that we will listen to him and believe in his words. And so the, following the, the previous chapter, if you just glance back at chapter 5, um, the, the passage that Shane took us through last week, we've just had a record of four incredible miracles in the life of Jesus. And immediately following those four miracles, look at how chapter 6 starts. Verse 1, he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him, and on the Sabbath, he went into the synagogue to do miracles. No, it doesn't say that. He went into the synagogue to teach, and many heard him were astonished. Look how that section ends in verse 6. And he went about among the villages teaching. So, true to his declared mission and purpose from chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus, having established his authority now over the physical and the spiritual realm, over demons and diseases, even his authority over life itself, as he has just raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Jesus now returns to his primary task of preaching and teaching the truths of the kingdom of God. And the first response to the words of Jesus in this chapter are the people in his hometown, the hometown of Nazareth. These were people who were very familiar with Jesus. He grew up among them, family members, friends, the general public of this very small rural town. Now, if you've ever lived in a very small rural town, as we did for eight years in Moy River, you will know that everyone knows everyone. And they make it their business to know everything about everyone. And so Jesus enters the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he begins to speak words. He teaches them. 
And we are told that their response was one of astonishment. Now, if we're not careful to let the text speak for itself, we might be tempted to read their astonishment too positively. We could be tempted to read verse 2 and 3 like this. Wow, this is amazing. Where did he get this teaching? His wisdom is incredible. Surely no normal person can do the miracles that he's doing. Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph? Aren't his sisters over there? It's all amazing. Please don't miss the last line of verse 3. This is certainly not how they responded to him. No, verse 3 tells us that when they heard the teaching of Jesus, they took offense at him. So we have to then go back and reread verse 2 and 3. Where does this bloke get this stuff? Who does he think he is to talk down on us like some kind of rabbi? How is it possible that we hear of him doing miracles? No ways. He's just a carpenter. He's the illegitimate son of Mary. He's just one of us. Look around at his siblings. Who does he think he is? The old adage, familiarity breeds contempt, could not be more appropriate to reveal the hearts of the residents of Nazareth. That's really the essence of what Jesus says in verse 4. A prophet is not without honor. In other words, he's honored everywhere except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Familiarity breeds contempt. But verse 6 reveals the heart behind their rejection of Jesus. And we are told it's one of unbelief. They could not see that the man in front of them in the synagogue was indeed the Holy One of God, the Son of the Most High. He was the one who spoke all creation into existence, who even in that moment was sustaining their very life by the power of His Word. Couldn't see it. And so we see a very shocking thing in verse 5. We are told that Jesus could do no mighty work there except healing a few of the sick. Now this verse, verse 5, does not mean that Jesus was somehow limited in his ability to do miracles in Nazareth. Some prosperity teachers like to put this view forward, that unbelief to Jesus is like kryptonite to Superman. It sucks all of his power and ability to heal. And so if only you have faith, then you release the power of God to act. This is the false teaching that is at the core of the word of faith movement. Let me ask you, what kind of a God is that? A God who requires us feeble, sinful, broken human beings to give him permission and the power to act. That's certainly not the God of the Bible. Now, what we have here is Jesus' unwillingness to reveal his power to those who were offended by him and who rejected his teaching. You see, Jesus' miracles authenticated his message. We've seen that multiple times. But Jesus was not about using his miracles to try and win the approval of people who did not believe in him and what he taught. 
In all the accounts that we've seen so far, we've seen that people who needed healing, they flocked to Jesus. They knew that he could heal them, and they came to him for healing, and he healed them. But here we see that Jesus marvels at their lack of faith in him, and instead of coming to him for healing, they took offense at him. What a warning this is for us today. There are many in the church in general, and I would argue in our church right here at Honey Ridge, who, like the people of Nazareth, have grown up around Jesus. It's not limited to the young people, but let me speak specifically to our young people, our young adults here this evening who have grown up in Christian homes. You've grown up attending Sunday school and holiday clubs and youth groups. You're even here tonight mainly because your parents haven't yet given you the freedom to stay away on Sunday nights. In other words, you've grown up around Jesus. And yet as you sit here tonight, you know your heart, you take offense at his word. Please see in verse 6 that after Jesus marveled at their unbelief, what did he do? He left them alone and took his word elsewhere. Now, if you're offended by Jesus tonight, this is a warning to those who are so familiar with Jesus, so familiar with church, so familiar with Bible stories, and yet familiarity has bred contempt. The warning is if you continue to reject Jesus and you take offense at his word, he will take his word elsewhere. And while that might sound quite appealing to you right now, it is in actual fact a tragic symbol of God's judgment that will rest on your life. You can speak to many young people who once attended this church. Some were even baptized in this baptistry. Some of them were youth leaders, some of them played in worship teams, and today their lives are tragically nowhere spiritually, and they are headed on a path of moral decline and brokenness because they rejected the words of Jesus, and so Jesus took his word elsewhere. Let's be warned by what Jesus does in his hometown of Nazareth. Well, in the second place tonight, we see the words of Jesus heal the broken in verses 7 to 13. Now, up to this point in Mark's gospel, the disciples have been learning from Jesus. They've been following along with Jesus. But now we see that Jesus begins to multiply his kingdom work by appointing the disciples to go out on his behalf, to be spokesmen, to proclaim the words of Jesus to others. He didn't send them out to go and share their own ideas with other people, but to go and proclaim his word to the villagers. You must remember that Jesus, in his humanity, in taking on humanity, he was limited to a single place at a single time. And so now he appoints his disciples to go out in pairs and to expand the teaching and the preaching ministry of the kingdom. Now, why two by two? Well, because the animals went into the ark two by two. No, it's not that. Because in the context, in the culture of the day, 
The truth of a matter had to be established, how? By the witness, by the testimony of two witnesses. And we see again the focus here on, uh, from Jesus is that his preaching and teaching and declaring his word is the truth. It's the truth of his words. His miracles had authenticated the truth of his words to his disciples. They believed that he was the Holy One of God. They knew that his words were true. But now he sends them out in pairs, as the Old Testament required, to go and proclaim his truth to the people of Israel. We also see that he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Right from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we've seen Satan, we've seen demons regularly oppose the proclamation of the truth of Jesus. And so Jesus not only sends them out in pairs in order to declare the truth, but he also gives them supernatural authority over the evil spirits so that nothing will hinder the preaching of the gospel. In verse 8 and 9, Jesus reminds his disciples that this work which he's sending them out on is a work of faith. They are his spokesmen, and so he will provide for them. And then in verse 10, they are told that if they enter a town where they are treated as Jesus was treated in Nazareth, where their message is rejected, then the urgency of the gospel, the, the proclamation of the gospel must drive them on to the next place to go and preach the gospel where it will be received. Now, verse 11 is really a repeat of the warning issued in the previous section when Jesus left Nazareth. Please look at verse 11. It's a graphic picture that if you reject the message of Jesus, then God will reject you. Verse 11, if any place, Jesus says, will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Now, this is particularly pointed. This is sharp. Uh, because in those days, if a Jew visited a Gentile territory or nation around them and then returned back home, well, as you crossed back over into Israel, as a sign of your contempt against the uncleanness of the Gentiles, you would take your sandals and you would dust the, shake the dust off your feet so as to not bring any of their Gentile defilement back into the land of Israel. Well, here Jesus takes their own practice and he turns it on its head. And he tells his disciples, the truly unclean people are not the Gentiles. The truly unclean people are those who reject the gospel. So he says to his disciples, shake the dust of the unbelieving Israelites off your feet if they reject my words. So except for those few incidents which must have occurred of gospel rejection, it does seem by and large that the disciples' proclamation of the words of Jesus resulted in repentance and faith. Notice the contrast with verse 5 and 6 where Nazareth's rejection of Jesus and unbelief, it led to Jesus withholding miracles. But now as his disciples go out and they proclaim, look at verse 12, that people should repent, they are met with faith in Jesus. How do we know that? Because we are told the disciples cast out many demons and healed many who were sick. Nazareth, few believed, few healings. Here as the disciples go out, many demons cast out many who were sick. 
And so the contrast to the offense of the unbelievers in Nazareth, here we see now as the disciples proclaim the words of Jesus, it brought healing to many. Many broken, hurting, demon-possessed people repented of their sin, believed in Jesus, and were healed. But Mark does not want us to think that it's always plain sailing when we share the gospel of Jesus. Because that's certainly not the case. And so in the third place, I want us to see that the words of Jesus enrage the wicked. We see this in verses 14 to 29. This next section seems out of place chronologically, and, and it is. Uh, it is because the events surrounding the death of John the Baptist had actually happened some time earlier. And Mark had the opportunity to tell us about the death of John the Baptist back in chapter 1, verse 14, but, but he didn't. He chose to introduce the full account of John's murder here to show us another response to the words and the teaching of Jesus. And for many in our world today, especially many who've grown up around Jesus in the church, their offense and their rejection of Jesus is usually quite passive. Yeah, they may mock him with words. Uh, they may simply ignore Jesus by just getting on with their life and pretending that he doesn't exist and that his words are not true. But for others, their rejection of Jesus is much more intense because it comes from a heart which is not only hardened in unbelief, but a heart which is hardened through wickedness. And yes, there is a difference. There is a progression. A heart which is hardened in unbelief usually leads to a lifestyle of wickedness and an ever-increasing hardness against God. We don't have time to go through the whole account. I'm sure you know the story well as we read it. Um, but we see the lengths to which someone who is hardened in their wickedness will go to in order to silence the words of Jesus. So we've got the puppet king, Herod Antipas. He's violated God's law by taking his sister-in-law, his brother Philip's wife, to now be his own wife. And John the Baptist had simply and clearly preached to him the truth of God's word. Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20. This was a sin forbidden by God. And we know that John's preaching was also a message of repentance. And so he would have certainly been calling for Herod to repent, to turn back to God and to make right before God as the king over Israel. But Herod and his new wife, Herodias, well, it seems they were intoxicated by love. Or maybe intoxicated by power, who knows. And so they reject the word of God spoken through the last of the prophets. And although Herodias has wanted to silence John for some time, Herod knew that John was a righteous man, a holy man, and so he locks him up in prison to keep him safe. And the story goes on. Herod throws a birthday party. Um, the alcohol flows freely. Human pride and pomp and ceremony is on display for all to see. There's music. There's dance. There's probably a degree of seduction going on. And before the clock strikes 12, Herod makes the most stupid declaration to the daughter of Herodias. Ask whatever you wish, even up to half of my kingdom, and I promise in front of all of these witnesses that I'll give it to you. Well, the girl doesn't waste any time. She goes to her mom. Finally, she has a chance to silence the words of Jesus. 
through the prophet John, and she asks for John's head on a platter. Well, usually, as in this case, sobering up comes too late to undo the mess that we caused when we were drunk. And so Herod deeply regrets his foolishness and his pride, but we are told his fear of man. His fear of man trumps his fear of God, and he issues the order to have John beheaded. Now, please don't miss the inclusion of this account at exactly this location in Mark's gospel, which is that Mark is showing us the cost of speaking the truth about Jesus in this world. Yes, some will take offense and will reject you. Some will ask you to leave their town. Others will unfriend you on Facebook. But some hardened in their wickedness against God, will silence you. It's reported that in the history of the church, over 70 million Christians have lost their lives like John the Baptist, as martyrs. 70 million who put their faith in Jesus Christ and were unwilling to renounce their commitment to the words of Jesus and were killed. What a sobering reminder of of what we studied not too long ago in Revelation 12 of the dragon, Satan, who when he failed to devour the child who is Jesus, in anger he pursues the offspring of the woman, that's the church, to make war on those who keep the commandments of God and who hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. This is Satan at work behind the acts of Herod and Herodias. We know, yes, we know all too well that intense persecution against Christians, it's rampant in many parts of the world today. But I think we are fast approaching a new season in world history where unless God intervenes by His grace, it won't be long before even here in the civilized West, this increasing animosity and hatred to the words of Jesus will result in the same persecution and martyrdom becoming a new reality in our day and even in our country. Well, the final account that Mark gives to us in this section uh, reveals to us that the words of Jesus feed the hungry. And uh, this is the account of the feeding of the 5,000. It's quite possibly the most well-known of all of Jesus' miracles because apart from the account of the resurrection, this is the only miracle recorded for us in all four of the Gospels. But what is the significance of this miracle in this context of Mark's gospel at this point? Well, surely it is to show us something much more important than Jesus' ability to multiply bread and fish. Please don't miss what I'm saying here. Of course, the ability of Jesus to take five loaves and two fish and then to multiply it in order to feed a crowd of well over 10,000 people, if women and children are counted as well, this is nothing short of an act of God. Surely none of us would would even try to deny that. But Mark has already made the point multiple times in his gospel that Jesus has authority over all things, spiritual and physical. Nothing is impossible for Jesus. So is this miracle account of the feeding of the 5,000 just more of the same? I don't think so. 
We see in verse 30, if we just begin that account, that the disciples come back to Jesus and they tell him of all that they've done and taught. And Jesus saw that they were exhausted. They needed rest. They had not even had a chance to eat. They've been so busy. So Jesus tells them to get into a boat and they were going to go somewhere remote for some rest and nourishment. But the people saw Jesus going and they ran ahead and they gathered more people from the the towns and the villages en route. And when Jesus and his disciples reached the shore, there is this large crowd of people waiting for him. Now let's read verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Do you see the primacy of the purpose of Jesus shining forth in this verse? I mean, his disciples were tired and they needed rest. And yeah, Jesus was concerned about that. His disciples were hungry, they needed food. And Jesus was concerned about that. But when Jesus saw the crowd, he had compassion on them, not because they were hungry and they needed rest, but because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. This verse, I would argue, is the main point of this whole miracle account. Jesus is not unconcerned about our physical needs. He knows them before we ask. He did feed his disciples along with the great multitude, but that was not his focus or his purpose. What drove Jesus to compassion was their need for truth, their need to be taught his word. So can I just encourage you, if you're involved in Sunday school teaching or holiday club or anything of this nature, when you focus on the physical feeding of the 5,000 as the main point about how great Jesus is, I think you've missed the point of this parable, uh, of this account. When we focus on the little boy who offered up his lunchbox to Jesus, and we then apply it and teach that if only you will offer Jesus your five loaves and two fish, he will do a miracle in your life. You've missed the point of this account. How do we know this? Please turn over with me to John's gospel, John chapter six. This is the parallel account that I mentioned earlier, John chapter six. We will see that John's emphasis of this event aligns 100% with Mark's in this whole section on the words of Jesus. In John six, verse one to 15, we have the same account of the feeding of the 5,000. And then that's followed uh, in verse 16 by Jesus walking on the water, which we're going to look at in Mark's gospel next week. But let's pick up in John's account in verse 25, where the same crowd who had been fed now the night before find Jesus the next day on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And I'm going to bring up just a a selection uh, of these verses on the screen. When they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs. In other words, not because you saw the miracles which pointed to who Jesus is. That's the word Simeon. It's a pointer to who Jesus is. You are seeking me, he says, because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're only back for more food. Do not work for the food that perishes 
but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus? This is the same response in Nazareth, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. How can he say, I've come down from heaven? Verse 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So coming back to to Mark chapter 6, we see that this is Mark's point. By including this miracle in this section, which focuses on the varied responses to the words of Jesus. Because in the end, our response to the words of Jesus simply reveal our true heart attitude to the Word, who is Jesus. Jesus is the living bread that came down from heaven, and unless you and I feed on him, we will die. To separate Jesus from his word is to violate the message of the Bible. Jesus is the word of God in the flesh, and what you and I need more than rest, what you and I need more than physical food, what we need more than physical healing is the bread of life which leads to eternal life. So I end where I started this evening with Jesus then questioning his disciples in John 6, 67. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You, you alone is the implication. You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So what about you tonight? As you look around you, many people who used to call themselves Christians have walked away from Jesus. Many others in our day are not just offended by Jesus, but they are enraged by him. Many today hate Jesus. They hate his words. They hate his laws and his principles for holy living, and they hate those who follow him. But into this broken world of sin and destruction and offense and hatred, Jesus continues to have great compassion on our world. How do we know that? because he continues to speak the truth of his word. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
So as you've heard just a few of the words of Jesus tonight, his question to his disciples echoes out to you and to me. Do you want to go away as well? My prayer for each of us tonight is that with Peter, we would truly cry out afresh, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed. I have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. May that be true of all of us. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this evening for the simplicity of your word. That we do not need to leave here tonight confused about who you are. Confused by what the world says you are or are not. Your word is clear. You are the Son of God. You are the Holy One of God. You are the bread who came down from heaven. And unless we feast on you, we will die. Lord, that truth in its simplicity robs us of all our human pride because we bring nothing to our salvation. It removes all of our abilities to want to contribute to our work of salvation. For we can add nothing to who you are. But it simply requires that we recognize our deep need for you, for your truth, for your saving grace, for your healing and forgiveness in our lives. And so we pray, Lord, that those who do know you and love you, as we were reminded of this morning, will continue to feed on you. We thank you on this Pentecost Sunday for your Holy Spirit who enlightens us and reveals yourself to us through your word, enables us to not only be obedient to you, but to enjoy you. Lord, may that continue to be an ever-deepening and growing personal experience of each of us tonight. And Lord, for those here who perhaps are still in a place where they take offense at you, they take offense at your word, we thank you for the grace that You've shown to them by even bringing them here tonight, perhaps against their will for some of them, but they hear and they've heard and they've seen your compassion for the sheep without a shepherd. Won't you stir in them a desire to run toward you and not away from you? Holy Spirit, this is your work. We are asking you to do it tonight, to draw any men or women or children here tonight who up to this point have been running away from you. Won't you cause their hearts to be broken before you and to run to you as the shepherd of their souls? For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.